Our final speaker um, is a writer. And I would like you all, please, to give a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Sebastian Folks. And you've brought me a glass of wine. Yeah, that's going to give everyone the wrong idea. <laughs> it's fun time now. Yeah. Maybe that's the right idea. Actually, before you ask me a question, can I just see if I can get a free diagnosis from a doctor. Um, over the last few Pretty weeks, <laughs> I've not been able to sleep. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, but the reason for my not being able to sleep is something new, which is that I've developed some sort of tick or spasm, hmm. which is that when I lie on my side, just as I'm dropping off, I give a mixture of a sniff and a grunt. And it would go, Hoop! a very unattractive sound. But, but that's why I'm very, very tired. And my wife is convinced that it's psychosomatic. In other words, that this very somatic noise has a, a psychic or psychological or mental origin, which is that something's not going right. Does and I wondered if anyone out if, there is wants this a to examine thing? Mr. Folk. We can actually. Has that ever happened before? You've actually been examined on stage. No, but I'm. Well, we I'm, should do I'm, it. I'm happy to open. I'm happy to open my throat, but I'm, I'm not prepared to take my clothes <laughs> off. So yeah. we'll get some consultation happening before the uh, evening's out. Thank you very much for coming to our event. I just wondered if we might just start by um, talking about the whole business of storytelling. And um, really, in a sense, given that what we're talking about today is belief, why, why tell stories, which are essentially fabrications? Um, why do we tell stories? Well, clearly, there is people love stories. And I suppose that in a rather literal way, it was a way of remembering things uh, and passing on information. And I think it's quite important to remember that it's only in the very, very, very recent past of human history that people have expected uh, to know more than their parents. Uh, if you think of human history as a, as a calendar year, it's only about 20 to 12 on December the 31st that that's been the case. Uh, I think sort of average agrarian community in what is now Kazakhstan in the 7th century BC would have counted itself extremely lucky just not to have lost knowledge. Mm. And obviously you see this in Homer and, and the epics and the beginnings of, of the whole oral tradition. It's, it's to preserve knowledge and pass it on. But something else strange happened is that people found it was easier to remember if they spoke in verse. Uh, and then... Uh, I think people developed hearing verses and uh, people developed an appetite for poetry. And somebody, I think Richard Holloway, was talking about what is it about Shakespeare or Elgar? Um, he thinks there might be something metaphysical or transcendent, but there may also be, sorry to be rather reductive about it, there's something rather neurological, actually. Mm -hmm. And it may well be to do with parts of our mind which no longer we don't really use as much as we did. But why is it? that we all cry when we hear Nimrod. And I went to Die Meistersinger in uh, Covent Garden after uh, Christmas last year. I'm not at all musical. I'm not at all an opera buff. Mm. And about five and a half hours in, <laughs> many people slept, and all the Wagnerians told me it was okay to sleep. Fine. <laughs> I sleep in the second act. Oh, really? I sleep in the first. Oh, um. <laughs> but there came a most extraordinary thing. Uh, in the third act, there's a quartet 
in which the four nice characters get together and there's a most generous and moving thank you offered. And suddenly, in the Royal Opera House, 800 people, 1,600 eyes jetted tears. An unbelievable, you know, neural response. Um, and then people, about 15 minutes later, some of them went back to sleep, some of them rustled their programs, and the keen ones carried on enjoying the beautiful music. So what is that? Is that what do you, if you, I think it's, deep, you... it's speaking to something deep uh, and something sort of lost, which only poetry and music gets to. But I can't write music or poetry. Um, but apart from you know, the, the practical aspects of why people wrote things down and told stories in order to remember their history, remember who they are, um, it is clear to me that the, the job of serious fiction is um, to put some sort of order, some sort of consoling order on the chaos and the inconsistency and the terrifying nature of being the dying animal. And we have this curse, as the uh, Spanish um, philosopher Unamuno called it, this, this terrible curse of consciousness which has made us lower than the jackass because you know, we spend our whole right. time knowing that we're going to die. And this blights every waking moment of your day after the age of about 25. Before, up to when, you obviously, you think you're immortal. You think death is something that happens to other people. Once you've seen people die, you've seen your parents die and you get older. And somehow we have to live under this shadow and we have to find some shape and consolation. And it seems to me that uh, I think that where we stand, where I stand with faith and belief in the afterlife, I think was brilliantly covered in your last session. And I stand... Uh, as I think probably a very large number of people in this audience do, with Richard Holloway on his precipice, in a state of unknowing. And I think that state of unknowing is a very good one mm. for a novelist to be in. Mm. And writers who know too much and try and beat you over the head with their dogma are um, not very attractive um, or popular. Or actually, to be fair, very common. It is much more common to be uh, in a state of unknowing and to embrace that state of unknowing and turn it to some... I think consolation is, is, is the word that I would, mm. I would use. So the, so, the, so the novel, or you know, like work of art, both consoles and explains and orders. Yes, I mean, of course, to some extent, if you put a beautiful and consoling and life-affirming pattern on the chaos and illogicality of existence, you are telling a lie. Mm. Because deep down, we know it's not really like that. But it's like... Well, what is it really like? Well, it's, it's chaos, moving, uh, it's, it's small particles moving towards entropy, mm. so far as we know, isn't mm. it? But that doesn't mean to say that uh, the, each, each little head holds comfort as it, as it can. There's a good line from a poem by Tom Gunn when it called In Santa Maria del Popolo, and he's mm. watching these little Italian women praying in front of this great um, uh, painting by Caravaggio of the conversion of St. Paul, and he talks about something like their, their fists either side of their head, each tiny fist holds, clasps comfort as it can. Mm. And the fact that Caravaggio was a funny old chap, and the, the picture is basically a picture of a horse's ass. Um, there were very fine horses bottom. Uh, and the fact that Paul saw it's all a bit run, really, isn't it? You know, was he schizophrenic, hearing voices, what's going on? Nevertheless, it, undoubtedly, this work of art uh, bringing great comfort to these people. And I don't see that you can ask for much more. Does um, 
fiction then tell us any truths about what it means to be a human being? I hate that phrase, human condition, but does it tell us truths about what it means to be a human being in the world? Generalizable truths as oh well as God, unique Oh God, I ones? would hope so, yes. I mean, I didn't really, until I read D.H. Lawrence when I was about 14 or 15, I didn't know that other people had inner lives. Hmm which is a pretty appalling admission to make, and do feel free to snigger. <laughs> but reading uh, about the extremely tenderly described inner life of this um, young man, Paul Morell, living in a mining village, and his uh, parents, and the drunkenness and abuse, and his feeling for nature, and then I was just absolutely bowled over, and I thought, my God, it isn't just me who finds the outer world, I was at a rather horrible school, difficult, repressive, and unattractive, but, and therefore is forced to look inwards. Everyone has this inner life, and it's far more interesting, far more varied, and far more exciting than the actual material facts of jobs and work and living and education and so on. Um, and in my, and then I studied English at university, and it wasn't really until my 30s and late, 30s, early 40s, that I met people, I came across people who hadn't read a lot of novels. And I always wondered how they understood anything. Mm. I wondered how they understood what anyone else was feeling. Mm. And one way, of course, that you uh, understand what other people are feeling is that you just infer from, from their situation very rapidly what you might feel in that situation. But, uh, and it is actually possible there's a very fine book called The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by a guy called Julian Jaynes, who was a professor at Princeton. And it's about how we acquired this curse of consciousness, at what point in human evolution it came. And he has this rather unbelievably great idea. You, you have to read all lead up to it. It comes about page 300. That the first human ever to develop self-awareness developed it at the moment that he guessed its existence in another. So it was actually from the inference, because he wasn't sure how the other person was going to react. And it only came when there were massive diaspora migrations out of Africa. But uh, so to answer your question, yes, of course, everything I, I know about, not everything, but a huge amount of what I know about how you might feel talking to me now, or how people might be responding or reacting in the audience, or how they'll feel when they go home and what their lives are like is derived from reading Jane Austen and um, uh, Dickens and, and so on. And the rest is from observation and experience and, and guesswork, but mostly it's from fiction. Hmm. And so coming on to the fiction, so on your, I was really interested in the, the book on fiction uh, in talking about characters and so how, for example, you were talking about... Uh, the Homeric heroes who were actually kind of cardboard. Um, you know, so facts were delivered in those stories, perhaps beautifully, but the characters may not necessarily be more as complex. I don't know if that's a dangerous thing to say, but as complex as some of our contemporary characters, who interestingly, so you, you cite... Um, well, the characters at home are functioning schizophrenics. Right. They take instruction from voices. Yes. And this guy, Julian Jaynes, points out that this happens less in the Odyssey than in the Iliad, right. whose oral roots are considerably earlier Later. on. So his theory is that the ability to hear voices, which is something that was also touched on earlier on today, was act used to be 
uh, almost universal human phenomenon and was an absolutely key component of our development of consciousness because you were able to hallucinate the instruction of your tribal leader when you were not in his presence. And that the ability to hear voices has gradually died out. Um, but if you have been the Old Testament is full of voice hearers. And for some reason, we've always interpreted this as some sort of very sophisticated metaphorical thing written by the Old Testament scribes. It's actually far more likely it was literally true. Um, if you read John the Baptist, yeah. I mean, John the Baptist is the most bog-standard schizophrenic description that I've ever read. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful or religious way. He clearly is. And what's happening in the New Testament is that the ability to hear voices has all but vanished. And... It's just, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. There is your lonely guy being sent up to fish up the creek, and he's listening, and he wants to hear a voice, and he can't hear it. Mm. And it's incredibly sad, actually. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted no, no, you. No, 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 but Homeric, uh, Homeric characters less developed psychologically, yes, very much so. Though they so, become more so. And so, in a sense, you know, in, so you give the example of Vanity Fair, I think, where mm. the characters that we're backing we need to back these characters, but they're complex, they're flawed, and through these flawed, complex characters, in fact, important truths about being yeah. human beings arise, rather than as perfect models of yeah. um, morality. Yes, um, the novel has always been, luckily, a rough, middle-class, uh, user-friendly form, and it's endlessly adaptable. And it's really about individuals, that's the claim of novels on people's attention it's saying yes you're a you're a single person too i mean it was probably shakespeare who invented the idea of the human um, before that the idea that one person might behave consistently from day to day was weird uh, as you know medieval doctors talked about four humors Interestingly, again, we come back to the fact that there may only now actually be three functioning <laughs> psychological parts of the mind. So we've come back to that. But as Shakespeare invented, really, this, this idea that Hamlet, for all his torment, there was an underlying psychological consistency from day to day, and his consistency was different from Rosencrantz or Laertes. And that was a sort of massive breakthrough as far as... Uh, writing of drama and uh, fiction is concerned, and it, it wasn't really fully there until Shakespeare. You see it some was, of it in It wasn't Chaucer, fully realised until Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. all right. In literary terms, but then the literary feeds into, into people's real expectations, I think, and the way they live their lives. And informs, those ex informs the reality? I think so, yes. I yeah. mean, I don't know at what point. Of course, Freud also had a huge um, influence on this, as, funnily enough, Shakespearean um, criticism. But I don't know at what stage in the history, say, just to narrow it down to this country, pe most people ex uh, expected and believed that they were a whole, entire, and consistent individual, me different from you, and so on. Mm. And, of course, now we're at a stage when we don't really believe that anymore mm. because neurologically... All the same matter. We're all matter. And the self is just a, quote, necessary fiction. And people who believe that they ourselves are able to operate better in the evolutionary competition. Okay, I've got Which is so untrue, though, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously untrue. <laughs> There's a quote of yours from, I think, the, so the new, from A Possible Life, so knowing one was composed of recycled matter only, and that the selfhood was a delusion, did not take away the aching of the human heart. So e even recognising that a yes, material well, sameness... That is spoken by a character called Elena, who mm. is a um, female neuroscientist set in the future, who um, the dilemma of her life was that 
talked about by Charles Fernihuff. I, I wasn't sure whether he was teasing me about his creation in his book of a female neuroscientist yeah, who understands everyone, yeah, yeah. or whether he hadn't seen any of the 41 interviews I've given. But anyway, that's her thing. And um, it, she finds that although th this is set in the future when we have super, super scanners, and they do actually find the neural substrate of this curse of human consciousness, and it turns out to be very disappointing. Why is it disappointing? It's, it's simply a duct. Oh, right, so it's materially disappointing. Yeah, sure. but it's disappointing but it's materially. It's not the blinding scientific uh, thing that people thought it might be. It has no beauty, yes. like a sort of Newtonian equation. It's just a tiny piece of matter joining two pre-existent pieces of matter, and memory is able to come in and out through a valve which is open and shut at will by the person. And it's disappointing, A, because it's such a... a you know, tiny little yes. thing, and B, because the implications for, for the life of the neuroscientists, for the life of the people, yes. so what? are so small. Yes. Now, now we know what it is, and it's actually, it doesn't really solve anything or change anything. And there's a good um, T.S. Eliot quote on that, at the end of all our searching will be to arrive where we started and know the place or indeed not know it for the first, for the time, first yeah. time. Um So the characters, where I, I understand we were talking about imagination earlier on, and premises and where premises come from in scientific arguments and reasoning. So the, where do the characters come from? Because I understand that people are often astounded. So, for example, Birdsong, they're astounded that these characters are entirely um, products of fiction. You know, you haven't actually in a previous life um, no. been through a world war or known anyone like that. So, one, where do the characters come from? And two, why is it so astonishing to all of us that they're entirely works of imagination. Seems a bit of a failure of, of our imagination that we can't just buy that. Um, well, to take the second bit first, I think uh, there has been a long drive, both in academic university criticism and in popular newspaper reviewing over the last 50 years uh, into um, the biographical. And it is true to say that um, some authors of some good books have based them on their own experiences. And perhaps the greatest novel of the 20th century, uh, Proust, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, is a case in point. Evelyn Waugh became very worried after he'd written his uh, three books set in the Second World War that he'd have nothing left to draw on. He hadn't lived anything else. So when he went bonkers and was able to write The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold, he was very pleased. <laughs> but uh, it has become... Uh, it's, a, it's been a fashion of criticism at both a high level and a low level, and when uh, it's now become completely the norm, and it's, it's very difficult to break away from. In book groups, um, I don't go to one, but my wife does, mm. and she says there are the only two questions asked of a novel is, is this based on the author's life? To what extent is it based on the author's life? And to what extent does the author's portrayal of these experiences tally with mine? And there is no attempt to see it as a work of art, as a, cre as a free-floating created entity mm. at all. They don't have the tools to understand that. But how we got to that, I don't really know, because when you're a child and you first are read stories or you first read stories to yourself, the, the whole thrill is the fact it's a new, it's a different alternative, mm. magical, inhabitable world. Mm. And you don't when, you know, I read The Wishing Tree by Enid Blyton, mm. or The Wishing Chair, it's called. I didn't say, mm, I wonder if that's based on one of her own chairs. <laughs> mm. That would have been a... And I think we've lost that childlike wonder. Yes. 
Um, well, that's good. Wonder, so, wonders, yeah, because the other thing that I suppose that occurred to me was your curiosity about your your characters and the, and the, the parallels a bit with us taking history. So, I'm, I'm really interested to hear that in Human Traces, your character Kitty. Mm. So, lots of things happen to Kitty, mm. and then at the point when she starts to speak, as you're writing this, you didn't know what she was going to say. Is this true? It is, um, and for those of you who've not read Human Traces, it's, um, it's set in the early days of psychiatry in the late 19th century, and it's, it's an attempt to look at where mind and body meet. Um, and there's a, to put it very crudely, there's one character who's a Freudian, and there's one who's a sort of biological model psychiatrist, and the interest is that they've both started from the other place. And it contains a, a very big attack on Freud, covertly, uh, and the best way to do this, I thought, was only of his early case histories, mm. um, was I wrote a very long mock case study of Fräulein Katharina von A. Uh, it was immensely good fun to do. I'm not sure how immensely good fun it was to read. It does go on quite a bit. Mm. Uh, but there was a sort of inner joke for me, too, which is that it's not very fashionable in novels today to give a full psychological history of your character. Mm. Uh, if you read a novel by a modern French novelist, it's, mm. he went into the kitchen he opened the fridge he had a drink he felt bored he had a cigarette and then you know you don't even bother with a name let alone you know uh, a childhood and sort of you know how did he get to be like this so it was a great in joke to me to have I think it's something like I'm I dread to think I think yeah. it's something like 8,000 words <laughs> describing this woman inside and outside from her patella to her ovaries to her skin to her menstrual cycle to her affections to her parents to her uh, brothers and sisters and so on uh, and then uh, she is diagnosed by my Freudian as suffering from the usual farrago of nonsense um, she's in love with her father's business partner and when she is vomits her soup it's because it's an expression of uh, rejection of future fantasies and uh, she, has, um, uh, she has a sore throat because she's been caught imagining an act of fellatio with her brother's brother. So, I mean, you know, all done with great brio, I say it myself. It was great, right? Fun. <laughs> anyway, the biological doctor um, reads this. And he, says, he says, and I quote, Jesus suffering God. And he puts it down and he runs to this poor woman's room. And he says, we must get you into hospital straight away. And they get her into hospital, uh, where she is successfully operated on for two huge ovarian cysts, which have been the cause of the abdominal pains, which has not been a displacement of blah, blah, blah. And the fevers and the other things she had are absolutely bog-standard rheumatic fever. So... Um, she, is, she has been prodded and poked by two surgeons and a psychoanalyst, and she's been the object of all this medical uh, inspection. And then, when she's better, mm. the biological doctor, who's basically saved her life, goes in to see her and ask her how she is. And I didn't know what she was like. Mm. To me, she was a piece of meat. Mm. Uh, I'd been in her brain. I'd been in her womb. I described every aspect of her. And then this beautiful, clear, rather formal voice, she's uh, sort of Prussian, really, but half English, came out. And she was very playful with the doctor. And despite being described a very studious character, and wears little steel-rimmed glasses for her astigmatism, because we've had the Oculus report as well, um, 
She was an extraordinary mixture of proper and demure, but undeniably flirtatious. And she, I knew she had to fall in love with him. I knew, but I didn't know how. But by God, she really came on at such a pace. <laughs> but I just adored her, and I adored both her properness and her reserve and the way that she forgave the doctors for nearly killing her and then married one of them uh, and lives almost happily ever after, except the rheumatic fevers, you know, heart weakness. And, well, I won't spoil the story for those of you who haven't read so it. So you're curious about... You're curious about your characters, you like them, you're fond of them, you love them, all of them? Um, I think... Do you not like some of them? You, you have a rather sort of whorish like for those who work for you, basically. Yes. The ones who do a good job. Yes. I mean, like the, main, the narrator of Engleby, right, yeah, who is... Yeah. Um, Hard to like. Hard, a very unlovable yeah. character, but I, I, I'm very fond of Mike mm. because he did such a great job for me. Mm. But he has a very severe personality disorder... And he ends up in, the, in a secure hospital, which is the right place for him, believe me. <laughs> there he'll stay, I imagine. Um, um, so coming on to A Possible Life. Yeah. So that um, contains five strands, for want of a better word. Um, and it, I mean, what was astonishing to me was the effect of just what came across very much was how utterly, um, and Iona was talking about this earlier on, so the biographies of lives, but how utterly serendipitous our lives are um, and how, you know, events really are, well, we're, ha we're handed, I think it's your phrase, actually, Delta, um, some cards, and beyond that point, actually, any number of things can happen to one. And that's made really, I mean, powerfully in that book, and so terrible things happen to some of the characters and... Um, Amazing things to some of them, a combination of both, really. I'm just interested in that book, but also an introduction to a book um, of poetry that you wrote, which one of Joe Shapcott's poems is in it, Winning Words. And you use the phrase, the glorious futility of living. And that, so that phrase came to life for me, really, in reading A Possible Life you mean by the glorious futility of living? It, it, I think it may have been referring to the um, poem by Tennyson, Ulysses, to <laughs> strive to seek and not to yield and so on. But um, the futility of living is what we were talking about at the beginning, this curse of knowing we're dying and mm. everything being unclear and uncertain, science and religion, all these things having failed us in their dogmas and, and having to live in this state of productive uncertainty. Mm. Uh, and I see it as, the, um, as my job as a writer to, to stress the glory of that. And my job as a human being, actually, to try and to live in a glorious way, if you like, insofar as one can. Um, and in A Possible Life, the, it's really a book about, whether, about selfhood and the, the idea of the self. Um, but it's not written very heavily neurological or scientific. There is one section in the middle, which we talked about before, this female neuroscientist in the future. But all the other people have questions of self, and I think it's quite a religious book in the sense that the first character, Geoffrey, is a very naive, stiff upper lip young Englishman who goes off to war, the Second World War, and I won't spoil it for you, but he undergoes probably the worst experience that people could undergo in the Second World War, which in, in a, an extermination camp. And he comes out of it 
And his story is that he, he changes and something in him changes and he is able to slough off his old self. And when it was first read by the American editor, he said, at the end, are you suggesting he goes into some kind of fugue state? I said, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with this. I rewrote it. And I, re I wrote it, I said, the change was nothing morbid. It was more like the touch of an unsought grace. So that's suggesting, actually, what simply happened is that he's worked through without therapy, though he has been in hospital. He's worked through his post-traumatic stress disorder, and he's reached that glorious moment, which can happen in therapy, is that something melts, and it may only be the logjam, may only need one twig to move, and then the water will begin to flow. Um, I, I, that, that quote I've got here, because that sees me, really, yet he sensed a difference, not a medical or morbid change, more the touch of an unsought grace. So I was interested to use the word grace. It's hinting at the possibility of there being uh, transcendent things beyond our experience or knowledge. Or explanation. Well, not, yeah, or explanation. Mm. Uh, and as all the characters in this book bash their head against the idea of selfhood and what are we here for and brain and self and, and mind and so on, it did occur to me that actually these are awful dilemmas and terrible, terribly difficult questions for some of us, but for people with true religious faith, they're not really that awful. So one of the characters uh, in the fourth part of the book is called Jeanne, and she's an illiterate um, peasant woman in France in the early 19th century. And is uh, one of her charges, she's a sort of governess, puts it to her at one point, um, one day some clever man will be able to explain exactly how all the thoughts in your mind work, Jeanne. And she says, what on earth would be the point of that? <laughs> yes. And in her mind, it's not for her to understand these things we've been beating our heads on all day today. That's God's job to understand that. Her job is merely to believe in him and believe in uh, living a decent life. But the other, other people in the book don't have religion and they have to work things out in their own way. But the book is, is really what links all these parts together. Well, there are various things that link them and buildings and characters come back. But really the sense that one's self, if it exists, if it's more than a necessary fiction, is mutable and can develop and can change. Mm. And I mean, I think that the idea of oneself as being a dynamic entity is quite glorious and gives one grounds for hope. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think it may also even be a little bit true. I don't, I think actually it may be a little bit true is probably a good place to raise the house lights on that. Now, I wasn't